Daniel chapter 6. So we're going back to children's church this morning and uh, pull something from here. Um, Something about the nature of God is that the only thing that will accomplish the purposes of God are that which is sent by God. And that's the whole idea of the apostolic reality. Now, when we hear apostolic, we probably begin to think of a certain way of dressing or a bun. But that isn't what apostolic means at all. Apostolic at its root comes from the word apostolos, which means a sent one. That the apostles in whom Jesus chose unto himself were merely those that God would call unto himself, deposit something in, and then they would be sent out to accomplish that which God had put on the inside of them. That the apostolic reality is the reality of being sent by God and open to being sent by God into whatever he has called us into. But how many of you know that when we are sent by God, we're not sent into the world as we would like it to be. We're sent into the world as it is. So we have the answer within us, but we're in the middle of a problem. And so God doesn't call us to manipulate situations and make the place where we ought to be. He says, I need you to go in the middle of the problem Walk in the character that I've given you to walk in. And then the problem will take notice and say, I've got to get on board with the solution and begin to make things right. We are called and sent ones. We are an apostolic reality, whether you know it or not. You've been called by God. You've been sent by God. And many times it's into a problem. And that's the part we don't like, huh? That's the part we don't like because we're living under the tension of the already but yet not yet. Where the kingdom of God has come, but not in its fullness and it's not been consummated. So here's the tension that we live in. We live in the reality that God has come, that God is moving by His Spirit, that nothing is impossible with God. But yet there's this other reality over here that is a tension, that is a problem, that is a situation that we didn't want to face. And we're living in this reality of saying, God, I know you can do it, but why aren't you doing it the way I would want you to do it? The Hebrews, the first chapter, it says, all things are under the subjection of Christ. But then it says... But all things do not appear to be under his subjection. That there is a tension of faith that we're living in. And we're not to manipulate circumstances. Many times, right, don't we always think the problem is our circumstance? Right? And and that's the first thing we try to fix. If I can 
make this little safe bubble for me and my life and never have to come in contact with that which would challenge me, with that which would have to draw something supernatural out of me, well, then I can call that the blessed life and the life of God. But that is the exact opposite of the life that God is calling us to. See, if you want to be an apostolic reality, you've got to be willing to go where Jesus says to go. You've got to be willing to embrace the circumstance as it is and trust that the Spirit of God and the power of God will operate through you and begin to reflect and to radiate into the world and that the glory of God would be seen from your life. Are you open to that responsibility? If you're not open to that responsibility, then you'll never be apostolic and you'll never be sin of God. That's the essence of being sent from God. Now, it sounds grandiose, right? The glory of God. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. And our minds go to some missionary that did some crazy sacrifice or Billy Graham. But but the apostolic reality is to understand that even in the mundane and common everyday life, there's something supernatural there that we must be aware to or we'll miss it altogether. This is why Moses turned to the burning bush. And says, that's peculiar. And you know, we see that on TV and we think of this big giant tree that's burning. But how many of you know, desert's got shrubs. And have you ever heard of a desert shrub fire type deal? <laughs> like, but he knew something was peculiar about this burning shrub. And he's willing to take his shoes off and address this common thing as holy. See, it was God appearing as a burning bush and said, if you can't see holiness in this small situation, you sure can't set your people free over there in that situation of the most uh, giant empire of the time that is holding your people into bondage. You see, there's a common place that we must be willing to go. So it might look like this. Somebody goes off at you at work. I don't have a tower, I would. Well, you walk in the apostolic reality and say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if I need to be the one to bear the brunt of their persecution so that we can then get to the root of the issue, then I'll bear it, God, to earn credibility for the next conversation to be, let me tell you about the Lord. Maybe it would be in a holiday line at Walmart. You want to be apostolic? You've got to see the common is holy. There's treasures in earthen vessels. And so maybe the line at Walmart becomes a place for you to show kindness and charity and patience where everyone else is in a rat race trying to knock each other down to get a Black Friday deal that they're going to get home and be like, I've got to get a storage building because I bought junk that was cheap, but I didn't need it. Was the $10 crock pot worth it when you've got seven at home? Praise God. 
So maybe we see the world from the apostolic reality of every place is a moment to where I could give God glory. Even in the most simplest of things. You know how I got credibility with somebody one time? Every place I go to, if I see a wrapper or a piece of trash, I'll try to pick it up. Because somebody's watching. So you can get credibility with people if you'll do the little things. But you won't do the little things if you don't see every moment as holy. You won't sit at a table and say the words you need to say if you don't see every table as an altar provided for you by God to share the blessings of God and to brag on the goodness of God. Titus chapter 2 verse 7 through 10 says this, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn, get this, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So that our lives are like jewelry that gets placed upon the doctrine of God that makes God look all the more attractive and beautiful. And that's why Paul says to live is Christ... But to die is gain. But when I look at this world, do you know what I see? And even in my own life, do you know what I see a lot of times? To live is gain. And to die, I finally get to be with Christ. But Paul sees an opposite reality. That to live is Christ. To embrace life as Christ lived it. How did Christ's life go? Crucified in his prime. Why would you call yourself above that and think that your situations ought to be different? That if God could take the murder of God himself and make it good, he can take your obedience in every little situation and somehow turn it to some kind of great good for God. But only until we embrace our life as Christ and then see death as some kind of game. Not our death as some kind of moment with Christ And where we live our whole life not seeking God or not going after God the way we should. But then somehow we're going to die and then be with Christ. But Paul says to live as Christ. That the Christ reality is in my life in every moment and every second right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
Verse 16, one to fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. So if we see Christ's life as death and not the most pleasing aroma that we could possibly obtain to, and we see a life lived for Christ as death and as a bad odor, then what sort of people are we? We're calling ourselves Christians. That our lives should be a fragrance of Christ. And wherever we go, people should smell Christ. And some will smell Christ and say, that smells more like death. I did that for some years. But then the other people should smell us and say, whoa, something here is radically different and it smells more like life. Well, our text today involves an 80-year-old and a pack of hungry lions. So this will be a good place to start for someone getting tossed into a situation that seems hopeless, unredeemable. 1 Peter 5 eight talks about Satan being like a roaring lion. Peter says to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. So in a sense here, we're going to be learning about a man getting thrown into a lion's den. But then the Bible correlates Satan with being this type of figure of a lion that is walking around looking about whom he may devour. Now something to be noted in the text here is that it doesn't say seeking whom he can devour. It doesn't say can, it says may So what Peter's trying to say here is that can has to do with an ability. May has to do with permission. If you ever were in school and you said, hey, teach, can I go to the bathroom? They'd say, I don't know, can you? And a part of me wanted to go, let me try here. (laughs) Yes, I can. But the idea was they were trying to get you to understand the difference between ability and permission. And so they're saying, may I go to the bathroom? That would, that would indicate that I'm asking you for permission. And so Satan's looking for somebody who will just give him permission and give him a foothold to begin to enter into their life. And that's what Satan's looking for. So if your life wants to shut the mouth of lions, you've got to learn to quit giving Satan permission in your life to destroy your life and to enter in in any old way he wants to and begin to destroy the plans and purposes and destinies of God. And Satan's good at this. He's very subtle at this. He's willing to wait a really long time. I was talking to a man who'd come out of recovery. And he had battled addiction his Almost his entire life. He was abused as a child. Carried all kinds of scars of abuse. And he said, Satan wouldn't attack me in the detox clinic. He would curl up like a house cat outside and wait till I'd successfully finished the program. And then as soon as I stepped out the door, here comes that roaring lion ready to devour. 
And this is the reality that God tells Cain. Is sin not crouching at the door? Is it not waiting for you to make this decision that has been sown into your mind and into your heart? But I want to tell you something. You can shut the mouths of lions. And you can get to a place where lions have no longer anything else to say to you. Now in Daniel chapter 6, this event in the life of Daniel takes place when Daniel is about 80 years of age. I know on the flannel graph we grew up and Daniel was a little boy. Remember those flannel graphs? Those, those were cool. Felt boards, maybe another name you've heard of. And so we see Daniel as this little boy and then here's these timid lines. But in the reality, Daniel's in his 80s here. This comes at a time in Daniel's life when his conflicts should be ending. This comes at a time in his life where Daniel should be living the proverbial dream of retirement and kicking his feet up, not having to address new and more fierce demons than he's ever had to face in his life. He ought to be able to enjoy retirement. He'd been through enough already, it seems. But here we find Daniel facing another trial in his life. This may be our testimony. Maybe we thought we had slayed all the demons in our life. Only to find one up ahead that is more powerful than the ones we have faced to this point. A new daunting and deeper tribulation awaiting us. But something in Daniel chapter 6 verse 3, Daniel, it tells us that he had an excellent spirit within him. That Daniel had made so many right decisions and he had endured so many hardships and done the right things that his faithfulness, his integrity was so great that even these heathen kings that had come in to conquer stood up to take a notice of Daniel and even call him a friend. Daniel had been so obedient and and displayed supernatural characters to the leaders over him that in Babylonia, they begin to notice something supernatural about David and begin to, or to Daniel and begin to pull him closer. Now, when these Babylonians are finally conquered by the Persians in 539 B.C., Daniel's able to tell them that they knew they were coming. In Isaiah 45, verse 1, Isaiah mentions this great king called Cyrus by name. Okay, Isaiah is ministering in the 700 B.C. The Persians don't come till 539 B.C., and Isaiah has already passed away. But those that understood the faithfulness of God and the theological timeline of God had understood that there was somebody named Cyrus coming that was going to be a great king to liberate them. So when Cyrus pulls up, Daniel's able to open the scroll and say, look, we knew you were coming. And it began to incur favor for the Jews under the Persians that they didn't have under the Babylonians when they were conquered. The Persian king Cyrus is called by name. 
Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, it says that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps and to be over the whole kingdom. Verse 2, and over these were three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. So this appears to be a time of rest, doesn't it? Daniel's fought through the Babylonian captivity and he's remained faithful. Then here comes the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. And now he's rising up there. And out of 120 that control the kingdom, he's in the top three that are over those 120. He's appeared to elevate and get to this place to which he was supposed to go. He was walking in his destiny. It was a, a time of rest and enjoyment. But I want you to think about what Daniel had endured before this moment. The Babylonian army that took Judah and Jerusalem in 586 and destroyed the temple and, and ransacked everything and took all the people that were of any worth as far as knowledge or skills or prominence. They took all those families and deported them and put them into slavery in Babylonia. The Jewish leadership at the time thought that God would never take their kingdom from them. Even though they were oppressing the poor and murdering the innocent and rejecting the claims of God's messengers, especially Jeremiah who says, The Babylonians, God's already handed you over to them. If you surrender, it'll go well with you. But in their hardness of heart, they thought, We still got the temple of God. There's no way God's going to hand us over. And they begin to listen to false prophets who were telling them that everything was going to go well and don't listen to Jeremiah. But I want to tell you something. Just because you've got the temple in your life doesn't mean you've got the presence of God in your life. Just because you've got the rituals and traditions, and yeah, you can sing them old, good old songs, brother, let me tell you. It doesn't mean you've got the presence of God in your life. And this is what God has called us to, to not be happy with an empty shell and formulism, but be happy with the presence of God and to be wherever He's going to be. The presence of the temple will not keep you safe. You can die in the shadow of the cross. Ask the thief on Jesus' side. People thought the kingdom set up by David was an everlasting kingdom, and it was, but not without the obedience of a people. Why would God continue his plans on when he's got no people to share it with? So God has to come in. The thing, the attribute that God wants to show in the earth above all others is love and grace. And so when we won't give him an opportunity to show grace because we won't repent, he has to bring judgment to bring us to our knees where we'll finally come to him. It's not because God's pulling the wings off flies or gets jollies on the wicked suffering. It's because God must be known in the earth as love and grace. And the only way he's known in the earth as love and grace is when we repent of our sin and come to him and give him our life and worship him with all that is within us. See, to stand on the promises of God as if God's not a righteous judge is to not know the God in which we serve. It's to say, yes, I'm created, but I'm creating myself. And that would deny grace, and that would deny creation, and that would deny a creator, even though we might say, yes, I believe in God. They couldn't believe God would consume their city. 
They failed to consider that God is so righteous, he's not even willing to spare his son. What's a bricks and mortar to God? But I want to assure you, God will have a Davidic kingdom again. And it will be his kingdom and not ours. And he will have the quality of his character reflected in the earth. So this similar event, or this event unfolds 70 years before Daniel's in the lion's den. So Daniel at this time is about 14 years old. And here's his city getting destroyed. Here's the temple getting destroyed. Here's here's him being ripped from his family, marched on a 500-mile journey as a teenager, 500-mile journey to Babylon. And on the journey, they would take people out of line and they would kill them to make examples so that the rest would stay in submission and continue to march under the Babylonian harsh rule. Think of this trauma. Could you imagine a 14-year-old bearing this burden? Talk about PTSD. Daniel didn't have the opportunity to medicate. He had to come up under that burden and say, God, I'm going to let this situation make me into the man that you have for me to be as I surrender myself into the heart and mind of you, God. Think of a 14-year-old doing this. Think of a 14-year-old having the wherewithal that my obedience could preserve my nation. Not video games or pizza but the glory of God. Young people, don't despise your potential. Don't despise the opportunities that you've been given. Because God's no respecter of persons. But you could be a Daniel. Preservation of a nation could depend on a 14-year-old somewhere. He overcame the violence and the marching, and he comes to Babylonia, even to the king's table. So he's in a place of privilege, but says, I can't eat the meat sacrificed to idols and drink wine with you at the table. I've, I've got to eat according to my dietary laws. See, Daniel understood that he couldn't feast at the same table with the world and have something supernatural from God that he could offer to his nation at the same time. Can you imagine this? A teenager rejecting meat and wine. That's the aspiration for most teenagers. Let's party. Woo! Get out of mom's sight or whatever. No, I'll take water and vegetables. I'll eat my vegetables. It's a supernatural character of God. And somebody that was just willing to surrender and submit. That God needed a witness, but you know where he needed it? In captivity. 
that the apostolic reality was I'm going to send you not into the world as you would like it to be, but into the world as it is. And in that place, we will shame Satan and we will turn this to some kind of good. And if you'll trust me and walk this thing out, I'll order every single step of your life. See, Daniel was also rendered a eunuch. You look it up. So to serve in the king's court, you had to be rendered or you couldn't bear children. At the core of Jewishness is circumcision and family. That God would give you land and posterity, offspring. The core of his Jewishness is cut off. Where he doesn't have the ability to have children... And he has no land. He's carried to a foreign land. Teenager! It struck at the core of his Jewishness. He's been taken from his family and put into a situation where he could have no family. And his God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now it can only be Daniel and... Daniel! His God's got to be the God of Daniel. Can't be the God of the Son. But Daniel submits to these things and realizes there's more important things than his life and his comfort and things going smooth sailing. He realizes that the glory of God and my people are at stake. He was put in contact with kings that potentially killed his family. And these Persian kings, as we read about in Esther and and, uh, the Babylonian kings, they would have these big parties and throw these parties and they would get in drunken stupors. And then they would do something real brilliant. They would begin to write laws and decrees as they would be under the influence of alcohol. You thought we had problems up there on the hill. Well, they might be doing that. I don't know. And so here he is, faced with all these wicked rulers all around him who would get drunk. They would make these decrees and sometimes wipe out whole segments of society just based on this drunken revelation that they just had to say. He saw Belteshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, get the articles of the temple that they took from the, took from the temple of God when they destroyed Jerusalem. And he begins to bring out the implements and begins to have a party with them. He saw the wickedness of the entire civilization. But you know what Daniel didn't do? He didn't allow bitterness to enter into his heart and see the situation as unsolvable and think, well, I'll just escape when the rapture comes. He said, I'll enter into this mess as if God's never coming. And I'll be faithful in the place that he's put me until my last breath. See, just because your guy's in office right now doesn't mean that you're going to just quit the fight and just keep doing whatever. I don't care who's in office. God's still on the throne. And he still decrees what happens into the earth. And we can move the heart of God if we're men of prayer and if we're women of prayer who believe in the power of God. I think of many times the submission that he must have had 
to sit in a place and wait till the judgment of God passes. That takes some guts. And you can't know that that takes guts unless you've ever been set down by an authority. If you've ever been told, okay, you need to sit down until your character gets in line, or you need to do this or that, you know what? It's embarrassing to stay in that place where you've been told to sit down. It's embarrassing. You know everyone knows, because church people talk. <laughs> you know everybody's looking at you and knows why you're not up there. But the one that submits and says, I'm not moving no matter how embarrassed I feel. And I'll sit in this place until God brings me back into the light. And I'll walk into the calling and giftings that he's given me. See, I've been passed over before. And everything within me wanted to go. But you have to have the wherewithal to say, no, God, what would you have me to do? Here's what I would have to do. Here's what I would want to do. But God, what would you have for me to do? This is what Daniel did. Daniel understood the times he was in, and he would look towards Jerusalem, and he would pray three times a day. See, Daniel had a window. With jealousy of the officials that Daniel was over, began to see the supernatural power that was on him. And so these officials talked the Persian king, Darius, and appealed to his pride and made him institute a decree to where anybody that prayed to any other god other than, other than himself on a certain time when this music would play could not, uh, would be in major trouble. And Daniel's friends had to face this. And so this was a similar issue here that happened in, with Daniel's life where they talked the king into doing this again. And so Daniel knew that there was going to be problems with his prayer life that he was going to begin to look at as strange and weird. But Daniel also understood that if he quit praying, he knew there would be no restrainer of evil. And wicked men would begin to do whatever they wanted to do. So Daniel went into his prayer closet and he's looking to God to bring the promises of God to his current situation. See, this is what we're to do. We're not to make nuisances of ourselves and, and, and begin to badger everybody. We're to get in our prayer closet and drop to our knees and say, God, I need you to, to do something in this place, in the privacy of, of your own car even. Just make it a prayer closet and begin to talk to God about things you need to talk to him about. See, Daniel was praying in good times, and he's praying in bad, and he's facing towards Jerusalem. He understands that God is going to make a way where there seems to be no way, and now think about the scripture. God sought for a man. But you know what? He, in Daniel's day, he sought for a man and he found an 80-year-old. Don't let your age count you out. Don't let Satan whisper that lie into your heart. Because if I read the book of, uh, the book of Joel, right, that, that Peter began to preach, it said that old men would dream dreams. This doesn't mean a hammock in Florida. It means that they'll see something of the future that will guide God's people to himself. 
that they won't be resigned to their physical strength, but they would know that they've got supernatural strength when they call upon God based on His leading. Daniel's found guilty of praying during this 30-day decree, and he has to face his accusers. Daniel chapter 6, verse 13. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show regard for you. O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Verse 14. And the king, when he had heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, to, spoke saying to Daniel, Now get this, this is a pagan king. And look at the revelation he comes to just after watching Daniel's life. No other revelation other than that. Saying to Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. The pagan king is operating in faith. (laughs) You just see it? He's speaking words of faith. Verse 17, then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And get this, the king sealed it. With his own signet ring and with signets of his lords, the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Remember what the king said? Your Lord will deliver you. But then he puts a seal onto the stone from his ring that would declare this decree was from the king. So suddenly the king realizes there's a king above all kings... And there's the king of kings, and that the king realizes he's subject to the king. That he's even belittling his own signet, saying, your God will deliver you. And that my signet seal doesn't mean as much as his signet seal that he has upon you. The stone was brought to the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it. Verse 18, now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. The king just spoke the words of faith, and now the pagan king is having a prayer meeting, and he's fasting, while Daniel's in the problem. See, when you faithfully enter into the problem, the way that God calls you into the problem that you've been sent into, others who hadn't prayed will start to pray based upon the faithfulness that you've shown and the power of God they've seen in your life. So the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No musicians were before him, and also his sleep went from him. The pagan king is fasting and not sleeping, having an all-night prayer meeting for the life of Daniel. Verse 19, Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. Okay, get this. The pagan king is speaking words of faith. He's having an all-night prayer meeting and fasting. And now he's running to a potential tomb, wondering if the stone's been rolled away. 
You see the picture. The king cried out and he lamented. And the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from lions? Verse 21, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Whoa. You want to know what the excellent spirit was? Here it is. The same one that put his signet and sentenced you to that problem that you had to go into is the same one that you can say, Oh, King, live forever. Say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And he's worked all things together for good in my life. And the favor of God is on my life regardless of the situation that I'm in. And God is able... O king, live forever. Verse 22, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. Did you notice Daniel never had to say one thing here? Daniel didn't say, I'm going to get the best lawyer I can get. It's unfair Persian government. I just can't deal with it. Taking my rights. He goes into the tomb like a lamb. He goes into a tomb of lions like a lamb. And God shuts the mouth of lions. So that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatsoever was found on him because he believed in his God. That God. Daniel here is a picture of Jesus entering into a place of certain death. But yet three days later when the stones rolled away, he comes out victorious and gets a promotion. The world judged him, but he comes out of the tomb and has a promotion to where he's exalted to the right hand of God, to where all things have been placed under his feet. But do you know how Jesus went to the cross? Like a lamb. See, when we go into the den of lions, we want to end up being like a lion, right? And guess what happens when we enter in the lion's den like a lion? We either get hurt or we hurt someone else. And then the testimony of God's all over again. So now we've got to deal with those hurts. And instead of getting on with the evangelization of our city, we've got to heal all these hurts from people that have gotten the flesh and started acting like lions trying to rip everybody up. I got to unbutton the jacket. That turkey done got me all full. <sighs> Not to size up. Gosh. But when John saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sins of the world. What he was saying is, behold, here comes a lamb that's going to shut the mouth of lions. That they're not going to have unforgiven sin to talk about us. That they're not going to be able to say, oh, you did this and you did that. That they would be able to be shut up by the blood of the lamb. And that we would be made whole before God and sinless before God. And that any separation between us and God would be completely removed. That the veil would be rent and that the Spirit of God would dwell with us for the rest of our life.
The Old Testament prayer was, let me dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the New Testament prayer is, God, dwell within me wherever I go forever and ever. Oh, let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord.